Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Irish Studies, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. My name is Aidan Beattie. I'm one of the co-hosts of this channel. Today we're talking to Dr. Niall Wilhelm, uh, who is a professor, uh, a senior lecturer in Strathclyde, where he focuses on Irish history with a big emphasis on looking at Ireland in its international context. And it's that that we're talking about today with his new book, Changing Land, Diaspora Activism and the Irish Land War which has just been published by New York University Press. Niall, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks a million for the invitation. Great. So, so one thing I was thinking about as I read your book is, is it possible to just see this as a kind of a history of tensions between the diaspora and the homeland? Would that be a fair assessment? Um, in some senses it is, because I think, let's say, during the land war, the radical position within the Land League is probably articulated more by emigrants and in the diaspora than it is in the homeland. Um, and, of course, we can't project a sort of sense of uh, the Irish community in the diaspora and the homeland as one as, as a harmonious history, so to speak. You know, there are always tensions, multiple positions between people in the diaspora and people in the homeland. You know, obviously, in during... Uh, nationalist rebellions in 1867 again during the war of independence there are very manifest tensions between groups in the diaspora and groups in the homeland um there is also ambiguities about emigration of course as well in the 19th century a lot of nationalist leaders are anti-immigration even though they cheer the sort of role of emigrants in their movements and of course emigrants themselves hold mixed feelings towards ireland or towards the homeland and can carry a lot of very clear resentments as well towards the homeland so it's certainly not harmonious and as I mentioned the radical position during the land war is probably articulated more clearly by emigrant groups um, at the same time you would say that tensions between migrants and people in Ireland are not necessarily caused by the homeland and the diaspora as being sort of separate sites so to speak these are ideological and political tensions and these tensions exist within diaspora communities as well and between migrants and in Ireland of course as well so taking a sort of integrated view is useful at times because you can see that rather than seeing this I guess the diaspora and homeland is separate that these tensions are at play within multiple different groups and not just a question of homeland and diaspora being in tension if that makes sense. Sure, sure. Could you tell us a little bit more about like what are the radical positions versus the moderate positions within the land war? Yeah, so, I mean, in its simplest form, the radical position is the position advanced mainly by Michael Davitt initially and by Patrick Ford, who's the editor of the Irish World newspaper in New York. And he's an immigrant who arrived in the US quite young and becomes this sort of um, sort of radical nationalist, but also as, as a as a very sort of working class labor radicalism as well, sort of content in his newspaper, The Irish World. And the radical position is largely nationalization of land, that land should be nationalized, taken off landlords in Ireland and nationalized, redistributed in that way. And the moderate position is peasant proprietary. And that's, of course, advanced by Charles Joe Parnell and the majority on the Land League executive. And they argue that land should be taken off landlords and redistributed, but as um, I guess small parcels of private property that tenants can then become 
uh, small landowners in their own right. Um, and then kind of in relation to that, that question of radicalism, one thing that I thought was really fascinating about your book is how many people in the kind of global left, um, global radicals that are really interested in Ireland at this time, like you mentioned people like Peter Kropotkin and William Morris, Eleanor Marx, Friedrich Engels. Was that something you knew about already? Um, or, or was that something you discovered as you did this research? Yeah, I mean, it was something I'd come across um, in various sort of different corners before. So in reading the works of Kropotkin or reading the, the works of Engels, you find references to Ireland. And of course, they all find, all sometimes find Ireland a little bit cryptic and they're trying to sort of work out what are the motors of disaffection in Ireland and how to maybe embrace them. But And it's something maybe they never feel that they've completely understood, at least in the case of Kropotkin. Um, I think huge international interest in the land war generates um, in the late 1870s for a number of reasons. And I think it's probably, there's more interest than, let's say, during the Fenianism of the 1860s or maybe in later iterations of nationalism because the questions at the heart of the land war are so universal and so relatable. You know, it's it's about social justice, it's about anti-landlordism, it's about rent, housing, democratic rights. So in a sense, people like Peter Kropotkin or Engels can embrace it to a much greater extent than they can maybe something that's um, maybe more narrowly focused on national independence. I think for also for international, the international left and radicals, the land war is a model of a successful peasant revolution as they see it, you know, and maybe peasant is not a term that is that common in the Land League itself, but let's say from their perspective, um, in terms of attempting to sort of stir up peasant unrest and create a revolution, they see in Ireland a sort of a, a model of doing that. And of course, remember Peter Kropotkin in 1874 had gone to the people with the Russian populists, you know, tried to stir up the peasantry and found a very hostile reaction, you know, and peasantry ended up uh, reporting them to the police. Um, so there's that dimension too. Eric Malatesta, an Italian anarchist's interest in boycotting and how the Land League creates this model of action, you know, that they can then borrow to maybe stir up a peasant revolt in Italy. Um, and I think another factor that goes alongside that um, in terms of the international left's interest in the Land League, of course, is the British reaction to it. And the Coercion Act of, of 1881 um, is seen as, is looked, uh, uh, looked upon with horror by many in the international left and is something that is going to provoke um, more solidarity with Ireland and more disaffection in Britain itself. And of course, from Engels' perspective, Ireland is maybe a key to spreading disaffection wide, more widely in the UK and in Europe um, to sort of make the UK a little bit more combustible. Um, so someone I talk about in the book, for example, is a very moderate trade unionist called John Bryson in Newcastle. When the Coercion Act is brought in, he becomes quite agitated about Ireland, travels to Ireland, to, you know, on a fact-finding mission, comes back to try and spread knowledge about Ireland and the Land League to trade unionists in the north of England. So um, several factors, I think, make the Land League um, an object of sort of fascination um, for the international left. And of course, I think that's reciprocated in Ireland as well, because a lot of Land League members and leaders are aware um, of the sort of international resonance of the campaign and see their own or quite self-consciously internationalist, I guess, in, their, in how they understand the land war and the Land League. So, so as the Land League obviously is, is engaged in all this activism, um, through this thing called the Coercion Act, a lot of its members are, are being arrested. And, and this second organization emerges called the, the Ladies' Land League. 
um, which is, as the name suggests, right, is is women taking kind of taking a, a role in in this political activism. You talk about a woman called Marguerite Moore. Um, can you tell us more about her and like how does she complicate what we think we know about about both groups? Yeah, so Marguerite Moore um, is a figure that maybe hasn't featured so much in the in the historiography of the Ladies' Land League and Land League, and of course there are reasons for that because. Without the digitization of newspapers and records, it's hard to identify a lot of the people, or previously very difficult to identify a lot of people I talk about in the book. Um, I think Marguerite Moore is important for a number of reasons. Um, firstly, I would say that we tend to associate maybe the history of the Ladies' Land League with the life of Anna Parnell and the personality of Anna Parnell. And of course, rightly so. She was the leader and maybe one of the driving forces in the Ladies' Land League. But maybe a problem with that sort of association is that, of course, Anna Parnell falls out quite bitterly with Charles Joe Parnell and with good reason. I mean, he tries to marginalise and shut down the Ladies' Land League when he is freed from prison in May 1882. Um, And following that, Anna Parnell just disengages with politics. I mean, she surfaces again a couple of times in mid and late 80s, again at later stages, but she really sort of, um, it's a a very abrupt end to the Ladies' Land League and then something... it's a sort of a relationship that ends in trauma, really, with her and Charles Stuart Parnell. Um, and that maybe has led to the impression that late women's activism stops then in 1882 at the end of the Ladies' Land League because Anna Parnell is no longer really engaging. And I guess Marguerite's Moore story kind of counters that a little bit. Um, she's also disillusioned with Charles Stuart Parnell, but she maintains contact with the nationalist movement. She, and I guess importantly, she also sustains sort of progressive alliances that you find in the Ladies' Land League and in the Land League, so associations between feminism, land reform, nationalism, social reform, and so on. Um, Now, she doesn't sustain them in Ireland. She leaves Ireland in 1884 for a combination of personal and, say, political reasons. But she moves to New York. Um, She becomes a leading feminist on the East Coast in New York um, in various campaigns for um, the vote, in the late 19th century. Um, she is involved in urban labour politics. She maintains links with Henry George, um, sort of land reform advocate. Um, and I guess her story illustrates that there is a different Ladies' Land League to the one associated with Anna Parnell and one where the progressive uh, alliances of the Ladies' Land League are sustained into the, into the coming decades. And, of course, Marguerite Moore remains active into the War of Independence. Um, and she's also this living link between the previous generation of women activists in the, in the Ladies' Land League and the Common Amon generation in, the, in 1916 and, again, later on. Um, so... Um, she is also becomes an emigrant and again is interesting from the perspective of what we talked about before, the sort of tensions between um, homeland and diaspora. She arguably finds greater space to voice these progressive politics and her feminism in the diaspora, perhaps more so than she would have done in Ireland in the 1880s. And, and often when, when people write about the diaspora, they're, they're talking about places like New York, where, where Marguerite Moore goes, or, or Boston, or, or in the UK, places like Liverpool and Glasgow. And you have an extended chapter on Dundee, which is not a city I usually consider as being sort of an important node within this 
diasporic network? Why, why focus on a place like that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so Dundee, um, when you go to Dundee, of course, I live in Scotland now. So when you go to Dundee, Irish history is very important to sort of city's identity. And a lot of people, you know, will immediately talk to you about their Irish relatives. And so it's very much a part of the of the city's history. And of course, another huge part of the city's history is that it cons- was considered to be a women's city. And, and that's a big sort of aspect of it as well. I think I became interested in Dundee because when I started investigating Marguerite Moore um, and the Ladies' Land League, and I was interested in the Ladies' Land, the geography of the Ladies' Land League in Britain, let's say. So maybe we know a lot about Ladies' Land League in the US and in Ireland, but maybe to a lesser extent in Britain. Um, Dundee kept coming up a lot. And when I started investigating it a little bit more, I found it was quite distinctive and very interesting. So at the end of the famine, for example, Dundee had the highest proportion of its population as Irish-born only after Liverpool. So it was maybe, in, from that perspective, the second most Irish city in, in Britain um, in the 1850s. And um, as I mentioned there, it's considered to be a women's, it was considered to be a women's city. And that um, also reflects into the Irish community in that there was twice as many um, Irish women emigrants there as men and so it seemed a very congenial ground for uh, the Ladies Land League um, and it, as it proved to be I mean numerous branches were established they raised a lot of money um, for the Ladies Land League and they had quite a vibrant sort of political culture around the Ladies Land League um, Part of that, I argue, is that it was tied into the sort of working class cultures. So a lot of these Irish women, migrant Irish women, worked in the jute industry. So lots of textile factories in Dundee. It was known as Jutopolis in this period, um, a city where many women worked in the jute factories, often as breadwinners in their in their families. Um, so women in Dundee were... Um, and I guess this is maybe harder to evidence, but certainly involved in a sort of proto-trade unionism, if you want to sort of phrase it like that, in the late 19th century, um, and in sort of very working-class cultures in the mills. And it's in that sort of culture on the factory floor that the Ladies' Land League there takes shape. And I found that was quite interesting because, you know, we often associate the Ladies' Land League with sort of genteel type of radicalism. Of course, Anna Parnell, coming from maybe a, a sort of gentry family in, in Wicklow as, as her brother did or Marguerite Moore is also quite a middle class activist um, or some of the people involved um, from Dublin backgrounds are also quite middle class here we have a very working class um, political mobilisation let's say in the Ladies Land League um, that maybe is a bit of a counterweight to that and then maybe going to another place that that is not con- not as well known as a, a kind of a site of the, of the Irish diaspora although I think within among Irish historians it, it's increasingly well known as Argentina but there is a, at least a significant um, Irish presence um, you talk about a man called John O'Dwyer Cray um, can you tell us more about his life story he is a very unusual character and a very interesting character yeah he's a fascinating character I mean I like him so much I've decided to write a book about him so my, my next project is about John O'Dwyer Craig and his, and his family um, so he is born in the 1840s um, in a, into relatively comfortable circumstances in Dublin. His father is a clerk in the, in the general, senior clerk in the, in the general post office. He's orphaned at a young age. His mother and father die when he's about eight or nine years old. He goes to live with his family. Um, his education is paid for. He becomes a doctor. Um, he first, uh, upon graduating as a, as a doctor, travels to the American Civil War and to enlist in the American Civil War. But what's maybe distinctive about his contribution there is that 
I think it would have been very easy for him to join as a doctor to an Irish battalion, but he seems to deliberately avoid all Irish battalions and joins one of the so-called coloured battalions in Texas um, and participates in the Civil War in its sort of dying stages in the last sort of six months or so in 1865. So that would suggest that perhaps he was um, an abolitionist or at least that he deliberately joined one of the coloured regiments. His plan is to stay in the United States, but uh, that doesn't work out. So he comes back to Ireland, gains further sort of medical qualifications and moves to Argentina. Now he moves there as a sort of confident migrant looking for new opportunities in an expanding frontier state. Um, he sets up a, a medical practice um, and sort of as a doctor to the Irish community. I think um, what he's most well known for in the sort of the literature of the international left is his time in Sheffield. So years later, in about 1890, he moves to Sheffield and he starts an anarchist newspaper there. And while he's there, he is quite militant and makes a lot of quite sort of revolutionary slash violent statements in his newspaper, The Sheffield Anarchist. And he, this sort of is very upsetting to William Morris and Edward Carpenter and some of the maybe more moderate socialists around at the time. And they really dislike him, just want him to get him out of there. Um, and so he appears in these biographies of Morris. Uh, so E.P. Thompson's biography of Morris or Sheila Rovaham's biography of Edward Carpenter um, as this kind of disruptive presence who eventually then just leaves and disappears back to Argentina and that's the last to hear of him but in reality on both sides of those of his trip to Sheffield he has a very interesting life he goes on to be a leading anarchist in Argentina um, editor of the newspaper La Protesta which is one of the most important pre-World War One anarchist newspapers it was a daily newspaper which is unusual for an anarchist newspaper and of course the anarchist movement is very is very strong in Argentina because it's it's rooted in the trade unions, you know, and it's a stronger movement than socialism in perhaps contrast to maybe other places in America or in Europe. So I wanted to see sort of maybe find out how Cray got got there, got from being sort of this doctor who moves for you know professional reasons to Argentina to this leading anarchist. And part of that story is the Land League and his exposure to radical ideas about private property and um, about land reform and land redistribution in the Land Leagues through Henry George, through the newspaper, the Irish world, um, and so on. Um, I think Craig, in perhaps in contrast to some of the other people I discuss in the book as well, is more interested in the Land League as a model for agitation that can be transferred to Argentina and to defend the rights of labourers um, and the working classes in Argentina, rather than improving a lot of the Irish labourers in Ireland. And he's, as he says repeatedly, he doesn't believe Irish labourers are the worst off people in the world, as, for example, uh, Peter O'Leary, another person who I discuss in the book, you know, does present this image as, you know, Irish labourers are really the worst off and we need to help them. Craig is like, well, they're badly off, but you know, situation here is worse, situation for the payons, labourers and indigenous people is a lot worse. And so he tries to sort of emulate models of agitation um, and ideas about private property and land distribution to redeploy them in Argentina. Um, he's frustrated in that and then ultimately moves into the anarchist movement, I guess, when he encounters limitations in um, within maybe more progressive forms of, of land reform. So O'Leary is, is the person you talk about who, um, if I remember correctly, is also has connections to Canada, but kind of refuses to almost make the, the obvious comparison between um, land rights in Ireland and indigenous land rights in Canada. Um, it's easy to see why you, you prefer Cray as a kind of 
as a like as a much more likable person and and with politics that are much more familiar i think in the 21st century yeah so peter o'leary is interesting um as well and you know quite a complex figure but he is this really important sort of link figure in london between you know social democratic federation and, and socialist trade unionists and the land league and serves an important role there but it's interesting once you take him out of that context in well even in ireland or in the united states he stops seeking out these links beyond the irish community he's very focused on well i need to link the irish community in britain with the irish community in america and with the homeland but less with socialists and so on and of course when peter leary goes to canada and goes on this extensive tour through canada and the united states and he encounters the Ojibwe people um, in the Red River Valley and he makes very negative pronouncements about them and you know he's a very racist view of them and you know explicitly advocates Irish immigrants coming to settle on their lands because Irish immigrants will make it more productive so in O'Leary's story and in others you can see clear limitations on you know the so-called universalism of the land question people talk about it land leaguers talk about it being, being universal in Ireland but in encounters like O'Leary's in the Red River Valley you see the you know, the limits of that universalism and the sort of Eurocentrism of some of the ideas about land reform that are there. Now, Craig is a little bit different in Argentina because he um, is conscious of uh, indigenous displacement and dispossession as being at the root of the problem and as, as part of this larger story of land reform, if it is indeed going to be universalist, this is part of the story. And he, he comes back to that later in life when he moves, when he becomes interested in Mexico during the Mexican Revolution in 1910. Um, but issues of indigenous displacement um, are really coming to the fore in Argentina at the same time as the land war in Ireland. So you have people in the Irish-Argentine movement who are profiting from genocide really a genocidal campaign against indigenous populations of the pampas um while also you know uh, opposing landlordism in ireland and really they're engaging in sort of similar landlordism type practices in argentina and this is what craig is sort of getting at and raises these uncomfortable questions and of course irish argentine elites um don't like him for that really in the in the 1880s so, so how do all these people then compare with, with the last person you talk about in the book? Um, and I'll admit, I can't actually figure out how to pronounce his name. Thomas Ng Dever? Ng Dever, yeah, I think is how Angie you pronounce Dever. his name. Um, so he, I mean, on the topic we were just talking about, again, has sort of purported universal ideas about land reform, but they also come across as being having certain limitations and a certain Eurocentrism as well in, in the way uh, they develop. And... I guess Thomas Angie Dever is part of the story of the Land League, but also part of the sort of backstory of the Land League, and that he is becomes a land reformer in the eighteen thirties and sort of demonstrates the sort of circulation, this sort of long nineteenth century circulation of love land reform ideas, you know, to put it that way, that and it's sort of evidence that the Land League doesn't appear out of nothing in the late eighteen seventies, or at least that's how um, Patrick Ford and the Irish World and other people who supported him saw him as being this sort of important precedent for ideas about land reform so he's born in Donegal he becomes a land reformer he sort of he writes a pamphlet called our natural rights that comes out in the late 1830s and basically says you know land is a gift from god it can't be owned privately and it needs to be distributed equitably um, and that will resolve a lot of the problems of society he becomes he leaves ireland in the 1840s he becomes a chartist um, he's involved in chartism in newcastle however uh, he's forced to leave, flee um, because he's about to be arrested for his role in organizing an insurrection 
he moves to New York. In in New York, he's involved in an anti-rent protests or an anti-rent campaign in upstate New York in the 1840s that you know has some parallels with the land war in Ireland in 40 years later. Um, but then he sort of fades a little bit and he spends sort of the next decades trying to revive ideas of land, his particular brand of ideas of land reform, um, which are influenced by Spence and, and Thomas Paine and so on. But he doesn't really feel he's achieved that until the Land League, because he, he reaches out to Karl Marx or to socialism, but he finds their ideas are a little bit too um, different for his. Where I think Thomas Ingie Dever is also really interesting is his sort of quite difficult relationship with nationalism. And I think a lot of the figures in this book, you know, are nationalists to a certain extent, but it's not their primary concern. They are interested in social reform or land reform and are maybe nationalists, nationalism is sort of second or third in importance in their sort of social activism. And that's true of Dever. He finds it difficult to accommodate nationalism. Um, he really despises Daniel O'Connell and sees him as a sort of gentry aristocrat type figure with two close links to um, to um, uh, established politicians in Britain. Um, he doesn't like the Young Ireland movement. He says to asks William Smith O'Brien when they're talking about nationalism. He says, "Does nation mean a few Irish lawyers and gentlemen shall play a government? If so, a fig for it. I would not lift my finger to produce such a change." And then with John O'Mahony in the Fenian movement, he says, "National nationality per se is not freedom." So, in accommodating nationalism into his sort of view, international view of social reform. Um, he only seems to do that with difficulty, or maybe not at all. And for that reason, he becomes, I think, quite a sort of forgotten figure in, in the history of these movements because um, he's, his nationalism is, is very much in the background, I think, to a lot of his sort of more land reform and social reform activism. He also has a lot of tensions with the anti-slavery movement and abolitionist movement. He believes abolitionism is just a quick fix to the problem of slavery in the American South, and that only land reform can truly liberate all people, um, including enslaved people in the American South. Um, but in taking that position, he adopts a very confrontational relationship with ab- abolitionists, as he does with a lot of other people. And um, he's quite a belligerent character, you know, um, who only who believes he, you know, only he is right about every issue. <laughs> he's, a, he's a very strong sense of uh, self-importance, and he's how right his own ideas are. And that, of course, leads to his to his marginalization. I mean, I think at the end of the day, his ideas about land reform are perhaps best likened to idea of universal basic income, that redistributed land will provide everybody with a certain amount of land, and that will be enough for them to survive and to support people, to support themselves and the people who depend upon them. Um, so resembling a type of universal, let's say, basic income, um, maybe not, certainly not as revolutionary as someone like the anarchist John Craig or some of the other figures um, that I talk about in the book. But he is interesting, I think, in terms of what he reveals about the people that he encounters and the larger movement that he's part of, you know, and the tensions within that. So, so Dever sort of allows you to look back in, in very interesting ways at what we might call the prehistory of the land war. But I wonder if you could end by telling us what comes afterwards. Like, what, what do you feel is the longer term significance coming up even into the 20th century of the land war and of what comes out of it politically? Yeah, I think the land war has always suffered from um, a sort of dominant nationalist narrative or a, 
the idea that this is a sort of nationalist stepping stone as we move towards independence in 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 1921, um, or even more so that the land war is a sort of curtain raiser for Parnell's achievement of the Home Rule Bill in 1886. Um, and in that sort of nationalist reading of the Land League and the land war, the social radicalism aspects have been flattened out or downplayed. And, you know, even when we talk about radicalism in the 19th century, radicalism is typically assumed to mean you know, Fenianism, or maybe a type of agrarian radicalism linked with ribbonism and so on. And of course, both of those are violent. So there's a sense that radicalism is um, something that's opposed in opposition to home rule um, and something that maybe uh, flirts with violence to a certain extent as well. And so the book, in a, in a sense, is attempts to try and recover the social radicalism aspect of that and move away from a sort of nationalist narrative. Um, so its legacy... Um, um, and its significance, um, I think, lies in the Land League as a social movement, as a labour movement, as a movement when ideas about private property were questioned, um, as a time when there was a lot of um, international fraternity or solidarity with other movements in different parts of the world. Now, later generations of, of nationalists have issues with that. It's it's embraced and celebrated by Francis Sheehy Skeffing, for example, during the revolutionary years. But someone like uh, W.P. Ryan, who is a Gaelic leaguer and also a socialist, you know, was quite critical of the internationalism of the Land League and said it was too focused on other democracies and not focused enough on, on Ireland. Um, and also critical of it for not going far enough and not, you know, doing more for labourers. And of course, that's true and, and a whole other discussion. I think today, the history of the land war has, you know, important legacy for questions about housing, questions about rent, and of course, the present housing crisis. I don't think the solutions to today's housing crisis are in the 1880s or that the 1881 Land Act, you know, needs to be revived in order to um, solve today's problems. But I think um, more knowledge about the Land League and the land war as a movement for land reform and social reform would generate a more sophisticated debate about questions of housing than maybe we have at the present and you know i think certainly a government position might be that well market the market regulates housing and that's always the way it's been and you have people who own property and people who rent it and you can say well that's not necessarily the case during the land league um there was a big gray area between people who own it and people who rent it um and a lot of state intervention and ideas of private property and the market market wasn't left uh, to regulate these matters on its own so I think there's an important history there that can be used or at least provide a background as well for contemporary, more recent campaigns about housing and rent and so on. And so not just viewing it in a national, from a nationalist perspective, but from an international and a sort of social reform perspective as well. And I think think all of this shows just how perceptive and and even provocative your book is. Um, as I said, Changing Land is published now by NYU Press as part of their um, as part of their Irish Diaspora series. Like like everything else I've read in that series, it's it's smart and and very much worth reading. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks a million. Thanks for having me.